0: Good morning and welcome to our morning service. Good that we're able to gather together on this, another Lord's Day. We're glad to have Kerry McLeod with us this morning. We'll ask him to come now and read the scripture, if you would, and lead us in prayer, please, Kerry. So our reading today is 2 Samuel, chapter 4. It's right after First Samuel, if you're wondering. Second <clears throat> Samuel, chapter 4, starting, we'll read the whole chapter. And when Saul's son heard that Amorim was dead in Hebron, his hands were feeble and all the Israelites were troubled. And Saul's son had two men that were captains of the bands; The name of the one was Bahan, and the name of the other Rechab. And the sons of Remon, uh, Berthanite, of the children of Benjamin, for Baroth was also reckoned to Benjamin. And the Britannites fled to Gitanium and were sore journeys there until this day. And Jonathan's son Saul had a son that, his name, that was lame of his feet. He was five years old when the, the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Zezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that she, he fell and became lame, and the name of him was Nesebethes. I'm glad we only have to say that name once in this passage. Oh, there you go. That's how you say it. Someone said it properly. Oh, that's my mom, of course, correcting me. <laughs> <laughs> and the son of Remen, the Bethorite, Recham and Benhan, went and came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who laid on the bed at noon. And they came hither into the midst of the house as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib, and Recham and Bana his brother, uh, escaped. For when they came into the house, he laid on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him and slew him and beheaded him, and took his head and got them away through the plain of the all night. And they brought the head of Ish-o Ishbosheth unto David, to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and of his seed. And David answered Recham and Bahan his brother, the sons of Rimon the Bethernite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who redeemed my soul out of all adversaries? When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him at Ziglag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house upon his bed? Shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take away you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they slew them, Cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Isboshev and buried it in the sculpture sepulchre of Amur in Hebron. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord God, that we come into your presence. And Father, we we thank you, Lord God, that coming into your presence starts at the foot of the cross. And we're at home, Father, at the foot of the cross because of the great work that your Son has done. And so, Father, we can now boldly come into the holies of holies. We can come to you, Father, because of the blood of Christ. Father, we indeed, we thank you, Lord God, that we can rejoice, we can worship you on this day that is set aside, Father. That this special day, Father, may we rejoice, may we glorify you. Father, we put this passage before you, Father. We, we ask, Lord God, that you might help us understand. And, Father, we, we pray for the Smith family, Father, as Michael's mother is in need of a home. So, Father, we pray, Lord God, that you will open doors and you will give them a clear indication, Father, where his mother might be. Father, we, we, we pray for this situation and, and we lift up the Smiths, Father, before you. Help us, Lord God, to all pray for them. And pray for his mother. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that we are able to support missionaries around the world. Father, we we pray, Lord God, that you might open doors for them. We pray, Lord God, that you might keep them safe. Father, we pray that they might stand on your word. They might stand firm, Father. I pray, Lord God, that they will seek your counsel. Daily, hourly, continuously, Father. We pray, Lord God, that they will not... Uh, be discouraged, Father, in their walk with You. Or be discouraged on some of the reactions that people might have. Father, we we think of these forest fires around us, Father. And Father, it, it brings to mind that the whole world, the whole earth, all creation is groaning, Father. Groaning until that time that You send Your Son and You finally redeem us. So Father, we we... We mourn because it 's our sins lord it 's our rebellion against you that ushered in um, that ushered in all these earthquakes and fires father we we mourn for that, but Lord God, we have hope because we know that this is not the end that you will come and renew everything, Father. we thank you, Lord God, Father, we pray, Lord God, that perhaps these fires might even bring to mind. That Your Spirit will bring this to mind to others who have heard Your Word and have not put their faith in the only One that can save them. Father, we ask, Lord God, that You'll work these things out for the good, for the ones You are calling. Father, help us, Lord God, to glorify You in our lives. In Jesus' holy name, Amen. Very good to have you with us again. Thank you, Lord. Bless. Good morning. You see the title, a rude awakening. Of course, I got that thinking about that gentleman, that obishoseth, in his sleep, stabbed in the stomach in his sleep. So I thought that was kind of a rude awakening. So let's bring this before the Lord. Father, we. Uh, We thank you again, Lord God, that we can come before you. Father, help us to understand and help us to give glory to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So, this passage takes place during the Civil War. Now, a Civil War is defined as citizens of the same country uh, warring against one another with the sole purpose of political power, of controlling the country to form a government uh, of their state. So, as we know, in every war, there seems to become a point where it is evident who will be the victor. And I would imagine, you know, we've been blessed never to have a war, in my generation anyways, in this country, um, so, I would imagine that it would create some gloomy outlook for those who are on the losing side of a pending judgment to come. And of course, it would be a joyous look, outlook if you're on the winning team, you know, you're thinking that you're now your efforts are all paying off. And so, this passage takes, takes uh, place towards the end of an approximately seven years civil war uh, between the house of David and the house of Saul, Saul's son being Isbisoseth. Uh, after Saul died, uh, the tribe of Judah had anointed David to be king, but the rest of the tribes did not. You know, they did not recognize David as being their king. Uh, instead, they had uh, appointed Ishbosheth as king over the rest of Israel. So we know that two kings in one land will not work. You know, it just doesn't work. A house divided. Cannot stand. So naturally, there was a conflict that arose between these two kings. And so we're told towards the end of the conflict that Saul's son Ishobeth, uh, together with Israel, were dismayed. Right? They were beside themselves when they heard that their own commander, um, uh, Abern, had died. Deep in the enemy's territory, in fact, at the kingdom of uh, where David was, they heard that he had died while the writing was on the wall. You know it wouldn 't be long now that David would control everything, so it seemed like the commander of Ishbath was actually going to David to negotiate a peace treaty. He was going there to negotiate how he was now going to Abandon Ishbosheth and start supporting David. That too would have probably ended the war. But unknown to David, David's own commander had a beef with this other commander and killed him. And so when they heard about this, Israel was beside themselves. They didn't know what to do. And so this, this civil war between the tribe of Judah and the rest of Israel had started, like I said, seven years prior. But how did they come to this? How did they come to this point? Well, the very first king was Saul. Very first king over all of Israel was Saul. And he was anointed to be uh, king, which also includes the tribe of Judah. And so, as you know, he was a disappointment. If you know the story, he was a very much disappointed appointment to God being the king. So God decided to remove him and instructed Samuel, the prophet, to anoint David as king. David, however, was a teenager at this time. They think he was about 15 years old. And so if you know the story of David, you also know that he was a man after God's own heart. Even though David knew and believed that he would be a ruler he would be king over Israel, he never went ahead of God. You know, he always allowed God to be God. Remember Brad saying that? Allow God to be God? He did not try to exert himself and become king even though he was already anointed. He waited on God, right? He allowed God to remove Saul as king before he would even accept the position of being king over all of Israel. You know, David recognized who it was that did the anointing. Now, he was very much aware that Saul was anointed as king. And Saul was the king. So he would not dare touch God's anointed one. Even though David was a king in waiting, he very much knew that Saul was his king. And he would submit To his king. However, he wouldn't let Saul kill him. That's one thing that he wouldn't submit to. So David's life ended up being running away from Saul half the time. Because time and time again, Saul would try and kill David. Why? Saul seen the writing on the wall as well. Saul knew that David would become king. And so he tried to prevent that. He tried to go against the will of God. You know He viewed David as a threat, and he would hunt him down, hoping to kill him. And God would even use this to test David. You know There was a couple great opportunities that David had where he could have took Saul's life. He could have killed him, his troubles would have been over, he would have been anointed king, fulfilling God's promise. All his problems would be done. But David refused to take advantage of these situations. On one such occasion, David was really close to them. They were all sleeping. Saul was chasing David, him and his band of men, and they were in a deep sleep. David and one of his men, or a couple of his men, I believe it was, snuck in while they were sleeping, and cut the corner of the robe off of Saul. Later on, when Saul woke up, David was at a safe distance, and he used this point. He says, look, I was there, and I cut the robe. I cut your robe. I could have killed you, but I didn't. And so he did that just to prove a point. But then David even felt guilty just for doing that. So David was a man after God's own heart. And so he waited on the Lord. He waited on the Lord about 15 years. And that's the point here about David being a man after God's own heart. He was going to be different, right? He was going to rule with justice. Saul had failed. Saul had a habit of not seeking God from his heart. Saul had a habit of not waiting upon the Lord from his heart. And so God rejected Saul as king over Israel. And in this passage that we're looking at here, it is clear that David is not what you would expect in a king. You would not expect the way he reacted to these men to be just any other king. So what king would not reward the men that brought you his greatest enemy? The greatest threat to your kingdom. And they brought his head on a platter. You know, if there was a college course of how to win the favor of the king, this would be the first one. Top. First story. The head of a king that is warring against him. When the king of Israel's commander was killed, all that stood in the way for David to be made king was Ish-bosheth. So when these two men, Rechab and Bahan, deliver the head of Isbosheth, essentially the war is done. Ishobeth is dead, no longer a threat to David's kingdom. It's the last nail in the coffin. After his death, all of Israel recognized David as king. Now, there's only one king. You would think that David would have been pleased with these men. But he wasn't. David did not respond in the way that these two men had figured. Actually, David responded in the exact opposite way that they were hoping. David is a man after God's own heart therefore justice will prevail an act, an unjust act will not be rewarded regardless if it even benefits david if it benefits david it doesn't matter if it's unjust he's going to deal with it and many times we see that in god's word god will use sinful men to work out his plans But at the same time, it doesn't negate or justify their actions. You know, God used sinful men to put Jesus on the cross. It was an end to a means. But Pilate is guilty. Judas is guilty. The high priests are guilty. The crowds are guilty. All for their part of putting Jesus on the cross, regardless if it was God's own plan. Look how Peter put this on the day of Pentecost. He's telling them, he's preaching, Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain. By the determined counsel. They were preconceived to do this. They came up with the idea to put Jesus on the cross. But, It was a foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. But they are still held guilty for what they've done. Because they wanted to do that. That was in their heart. And so these two brothers, Rechab and Bahan, underestimated David's resolve to follow God. They thought to their own hurt that David would react like any other king and reward them for what they had done. Why would these men want to turn against their former king and jump ship? Well, the writing's on the wall, right? Their days were numbered. They knew full, full well that David would become king over all a united Israel. And in a short time, David would be king. So what would become of these two men, these two raiders? What's going to happen to them? Would David welcome them? Would David punish them? Would they have a position in the new government? Whatever reason, we're not told why they did this. But we can surmise they're trying to impress or appease David. They've seen the writing on the wall, and they wanted to win favor with David. These guys were in a bad way. They're on the losing team, they come up with a plan, and I kind of thought at the beginning it was an ingenious plan, but not really, it cost them their lives. And then I thought, well, it's a pretty common plan, like what common raider would not have thought to do this? Like I said, it's, it's, it's like you bring the head of a, of a rival king to a king, you're going to win favor with them. Like, I, I, can't, I, I can't foresee this plan not working. It's common sense. But these two men will actually claim God did this. They will actually look in verse 8. Verse 8 and they brought the head of Ishbosheth. Unto David to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life, and the Lord hath avenged my lord. The Lord hath avenged my lord. They're actually saying, Look, David, how you doing, David? Look what we brought you. Today, God used us to benefit you. We snuck in while Ishbosheth was sleeping. Stabbed him in the stomach and brought his head to you. God used us to take vengeance on the house of Saul for you, David. Never underestimate our ability to justify our actions. All the human race, very easily, we can justify everything we do. The problem is they underestimated David. They didn't know David. They did not know David's heart. right? They thought they could work. They thought they could do this, gain his favor by their own efforts. They thought David was like any other king. Doesn't that sound sort of like mankind? Don't we approach God in the same manner? Somehow we get it in our heads that we can appease God. You know, we might see the writing on the wall or at least think that we're okay and we're not that bad, so we'll be okay, which is another way of appeasing God. The fact is that we've all trespassed against God and it makes perfect sense that we want to appease Him. In my mind, that makes perfect sense that we know that we've trespassed against God, we want to protect ourselves, So we figure we have to do something to gain his favor. These men realized they were on the wrong team. They realized they were on the losing side. They were captains of an army. They had a good position. They had good status under the other king. And there was a good chance if David spares their lives, they will not be captains in his army. And without Christ, we are on the losing team. So it makes perfect sense that we need to protect ourselves by appeasing God. In my mind, it makes perfect sense, and I don't think I'm alone in this thinking. Adam and Eve thought the same thing. In Genesis, oh, there it is, Genesis 3:8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the, of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. This, of course, is right after they rebelled, right after they sinned against God and ate of the tree they weren't supposed to. And so their innocence was lost, and now they realize that they're naked. They realize that they're naked, and they aim to protect themselves. Actually, when I was doing this study, it reminded me of a story. Um, it was during Christmas time, and shopping for my wife, and I had my son with me, and we went into a store, and it had soaps, it had hand lotion, things that are foreign to me all different flavors, candles. Me and my son, we walk in there. We're the only two guys. And we were like deers in front of headlights. With no clue. We, we felt really uncomfortable. And no one was helping us. We are sort of standing there because we are really busy. And my son turns to me and says, Dad, I feel naked. <laughs> and I was like... Yeah, I do too. (laughs) I want to get out of here. So finally, a young lady helped us. And so, Adam and Eve here, they're not comfortable, right? When you're a sinner in the presence of God, you're not comfortable, right? You want to get out of there. And so, they realized they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, but when they heard the Lord's voice walking in the garden, they hid themselves. Of course, God graciously started started a conversation with them. But then we find out why. Why did they hide themselves? There it is. In verse 10. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. So Adam is saying, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, I hid myself. So now we know why they hid themselves, because they thought they were naked. But wait a second, they had fig leaves on. How is it they felt naked when they were covered with fig leaves? That they sewed together by their own strength, by their own efforts. It didn't work. Their effort did not work. They could not protect themselves before God because they still felt naked. They were exposed. Their own works of sewing the fig leaves together left them wanting, even though we, we know in another verse that Adam said, listen, it's, why did you eat from the tree? It's the woman you gave me. She gave it to me and I ate. So he even justified with God's again. He justified the highest authority. I did this because of you, God. And so our very first act, mankind or falling away, was an effort on our part. We tried to cover our shame, but we still felt naked in the presence of God. We're still exposed. We failed. Now, you might say, okay, well, given the situation they're in, you know, it was pretty quick. They had to do something. So you might think that they're the only ones in this. But, of course, the Bible records other times. Now, I'll give you a couple examples. One more example is Nahum. A of years later, Nahum was a great commander in the army of Syria. He's described as a guy, grab the bull by the horns kind of guy. But he had a problem. He had a disease. He had this issue of the skin. He was a leopard. So Nahum heard, now Nahum, this great commander, heard that there's a prophet in Israel that could heal him. So they set out to find, they went to Israel, they went to the king, and then they were sent to the prophet. So he heard that he could get healed. So what does he have with them? He has a bunch of gold, a bunch of silver. Right? And so we pick up the story in, 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 in Kings 2. Oh. Okay. Kings 2, nine twelve. 12. So Nahum came with his horses and with his chariots and stood at the door of Elijah. Now Elijah is a prophet. And Elijah sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again unto thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Nahum was wroth. He went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abanan and Ephariphath rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? May I not wash in them and be made clean? And be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Now remember, Nahum is an important man. He's actually a threatening man to Israel. The king of Israel actually thought. They were trying to provoke a war here. So he's a threatening man, and Elijah doesn't even come out and greet him at the door. He sends a messenger. So Nahum is upset with the prophet, seeing he would not even come out and meet this great man face to face. Secondly, he gave him simple instructions right? Nahum thought it was foolish. He thought he could buy his healing. He thought gold and silver would impress this prophet. And he imagined that Elijah would at least, at the very least, come out and greet him. After all, he's commander of Syria. And he imagined that the prophet would call out to God and wave his hand and Nahum would be healed. It didn't work out like that. Nahum, it was farther from the tooth, truth. Nothing happened the way Nahum had imagined it. Nothing. So Nahum turns away. He's triggered. He makes up excuses why he should not follow the prophet's instructions. Right? He says, I'm going to go back to Syria. The waters are better there. I'm just going to go wash there. Why can't I just do that? He's upset. He travels to a foreign country for healing. This guy doesn't take payment. He doesn't even come out and talk to him. And he gives him these simple instructions. And so he's leaving in a rage. But his damn servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do a great some great thing, would that not have done it? How much rather than when he is saying to thee, wash and be clean. His servants knew this man. He's a grab the bull by the horns kind of guy. If you would have gave me something really hard to do, he would have been all in. But something simple sounds foolish to him. But they said, his servant said, do it and be clean. See, Nahum had pride, right? He thought he could control the situation. He thought riches would gain favor and be healed. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Nahum wanted to pay for services rendered. Essentially, working for the healing. But Nahum was humbled. Nahum obeyed and was made clean. I, personally, can relate to all three of these stories. I actually think Rekha and Baha had a good plan. A plan to appease the king, to gain favor with the king. It should have worked. Adam and Eve had a good plan. If you're naked, cover up. That's what you do. Nam had a good plan. You go to a doctor, like, if you're in the States, you pay money. Well, we pay money through our taxes. But it makes sense that you can buy your healing. So how can I say that all these are good plans when clearly none of them had worked out? None of these plans worked out the way we thought, or the way they thought. There are good plans if you're dealing with earthly matters. Adam and Eve, it was a good plan. Adam's a manager of the garden, and the owner of the garden is someone like him their boss, then it's a good plan. Nahum and Elijah, if they had a business agreement, well, it's a good plan. If you're dealing man to man, it's a good plan. But if you're dealing with spiritual matters, or contending with God, even through men who are pictures in the Bible of Christ, I believe it was Pastor James McDonald had coined the phrase horizontal and vertical relationships. Horizontally we contend one another, but vertically we contend with God. So all three of these stories we're contending with God on a horizontal plane. But we can't contend with God on a horizontal plane. We can't. Their mistake is they tried to pull God down to our level. They thought God was just like any other man. They forgot that God is not part of our, this creation. He is outside of creation. He is holy. He is separate from us. And we cannot contend with Him like any other man. He is not a mere man and He does not think like fallen man. He is holy and separate from us. Gary, a couple weeks ago, or was it last week, he preached about when the disciples were on the boat and a great storm arose. And they were afraid. They were scared. But when they woke up, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He calmed the storm, they were terrified. Why were they terrified? Because they started once again realizing who Christ is. That vertical. They got complacent with his healing and everything else he did. But when they see him calm the doors, what kind of man is this? They were terrified. And that's a good place to be. Adam and Eve thought they could cover their shame. But God's piercing eyes looked into the intention of their heart. Despite their own efforts, their shame was not covered. Exposed before a holy God. Nahum thought he could buy healing. He thought Elijah would come out, wave his hand and command God to heal him. Recham and Baham thought they could gain favor with the king David. All three stories, by their own efforts, by their own works, they tried, but they failed. Adam tried to cover his shame, failed. Nahum tried to buy healing, failed. Rechabah tried to find favor with the the king, the true king, but it failed. Look at David's response in verse 9. And David answered, Rebah and Baha'an, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the brethrenite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, Who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversary? I trust God. That's what he's saying. But in 10 and 11, that's what I want to point out. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking that he had brought good tidings and took hold of him and slew him in Ziglag, who thought I would have given him reward for his tidings, How much more when wicked men have slain the righteous person in his own house upon his bed, shall I not therefore require his blood of your hand and take you away from earth? First, David talks about this man that he had killed, that punished He's referring to a young man who reported the death of Saul. But this man reported that he claimed to kill Saul. Saul was begging him to kill him because he didn't want to fall in the enemy's hands. He was mortally wounded and he asked him to end it for him. And this is just a couple on the, on the first chapter of Second Samuel. And David said unto this young man, How was thou not afraid to stretch forth thy hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? He had the crown and he had his bracelet. There's some indication that David suspected that this man just wanted to steal those. And when he was caught he came up with this story. But these two men, these two brothers, that brought the head of the rival king, they acted as if they had no knowledge of David's previous act of punishment for defending God's anointed. That young man paid the price because David was defending defending God's anointed. Or if they did have knowledge, they did not act on that knowledge. They were careless and ignored that knowledge. it: they did not know David. Had they known David, they would have thought twice about this plan. Had they known that David was a man after God's heart, that David reached up to God vertically and not horizontally, they would have realized that David is no ordinary king. That this David, this king, desires justice. Perhaps even to his own hurt, he desires justice. These guys put, back, they put forth their best plan. They didn't know the king though. How many of us rely on our own efforts, but we ignore the call of salvation from the king of kings? How many of us will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ on that great and terrible day and claim all the good things that we've done. Even claiming all the works in the name of God. I did this by the highest authority. Rechah What are they going to say on that day? Look, we did this to avenge Saul. We were acting on God's behalf. To avenge David. They were justifying their work as the Lord's work. Adam and Eve, justifying or Adam justified saying, it was the woman that you gave me. Claiming the highest authority. Matthew 7, 21-23 On that great and terrible day, when we stand before the Lord, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works, or miracles. Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity." Verse 22, they're claiming on the highest name, in your name, right? They're claiming this authority. Just like Reha and Bahan, they claimed that God Himself was avenging David. They were using, God was using the further David's kingdom. Is that what they're going to hear? Depart from Me, ye that work iniquity are lawbreakers. Clearly, they were lawbreakers. They were murderers. Verse 23, Jesus says, I never knew you. But wait a minute. Look at all the great things done in His name. All these things done in His name. Prosifying or preaching, depending on what you believe with prophesies and is, cast out devils, and did many wonderful works, which is can be interpreted as miracles. So these two men, they clearly did not know David. Had they known, they would have not tried to appease him by their own efforts. Just like this passage here in in Matthew. Their own works will not appease the Lord. But how would they have come to know David? They're enemies of the true king. They were actually working against the true king. How could they ever hope to know this king? Well, in verse 21... It says, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. And so doing the will of the Father is connected to knowing the Lord. But it sounds like, look, look, look what these people are doing. They're casting out devils. They're preaching. They're proselytizing. And they're doing miracles. Who did that? Who did that? Jesus Christ did that. And if you're copycatting the Lord Jesus Christ, that's not good enough to get into the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved? How is doing the will of the Father connected to knowing Jesus? Well, look at the very first. What does he say? He says, my Father in heaven. He doesn't say, the Father in heaven. My Father in heaven. And so when someone says, My Father, they know His Father. There is a relationship there. There is a relationship. The Father way up in heaven, but they have a relationship. So what do we need to do? We need to know Jesus. We need to have a relationship With them. But if doing the will of the Lord, our Lord's Father, is clearly not by works or even mimicking Jesus Christ, how can we know? I'm glad you asked. This is the will of the Father. The Lord is not slack. Okay, this is in the context, Peter's talking about the return of the Lord. Some people are saying it's delayed. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise of, being, of returning. Some people, men, count as slackness, right? They're getting impatient. But is longsuffering towards just not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's desire for mankind is to turn from their sins, to have a change of heart, to agree with God. That's his will, that we agree with God. Nahum was healed because he had a change of mind, right? He actually changed his direction. He was going one way in a rage, back to his country to wash in those waters. But in midstride, he turned and obeyed the prophet. He washed in the Jordan. He agreed. He obeyed the word of the prophet and was healed. Rechah and Bahan acknowledged that David was the true king. They acknowledged that they were on the wrong side. But it wasn't enough. It's not enough to confess Christ, it wasn't enough for them. It wasn't mixed with repentance. God looks at the heart. It wasn't mixed with repentance. These people will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? They are recognizing that Christ is Lord, except there's no repentance. There is no repentance. It has to be mixed with repentance. That shows your heart. These men were doing it for wrong reason. Probably a political move to secure a good position in David's kingdom. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, these men acknowledge David. In Matthew, they're acknowledging Christ, but they don't know him. If they would have known him, they would have surrendered unconditionally. That equals repentance. That's what we need to do. We need to surrender to the King of Kings. That is our only hope. In that, it shows that you're repenting. It shows that you agree with God. It shows that you are willing to turn from your sins. These two men came, they were so close. Recognizing David as a true king, trying to appease the king on their own efforts, what a rude awakening they had. It cost them their lives. In thirteen or verse twelve, they took their head. No, they this is what David commanded them to be killed, cut their hands off, cut their feet off. The hands that killed Ishbosheth were cut off. The feet that carried them through the night carried his head to the king. They were cut off. Their bodies were hung, publicly hung. Showing that the king was not like any other king. He is a just king. David being a picture of Christ. But what else does it show? Their bodies being hung in that matter, their hands, their feet. You can't help but think of Christ with His hands and His feet being pierced, hung in that cross to pay our price. The sins of the entire world, future sins, past sins, today's sins, all laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. He paid the price for our sin and God was satisfied with His Son's Sacrifice. How do we know He was satisfied? Because He was raised on the third day. These men were not raised on the third day. God is not satisfied with their death. Not satisfied. They're still, he's still not satisfied. We can't cover our shame. We can't cover our nakedness with our own efforts. We cannot put more money in the offering plate hoping to buy God's favor. Even if we do miracles, cast out demons... Preaching, looking like Jesus. It doesn't entice God to save us. We cannot appease God. Christ did it on the cross. He took our shame. He paid the price for our sins, which gold and silver cannot buy. And through His work, His own efforts, He appeased God. We need to think about these things. Are you with Christ? Have you crossed over to the winning side? Have you surrendered to the King of Kings? Or are you relying on your own strength? Even as a Christian, sometimes we go back and we think we can appease God. But it's by grace. By grace you are saved. Where it would be without the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you, Lord God, for your grace. We thank you, Lord God, for these stories that declare your righteousness. Oh, Father, help us to agree with you. Help us, Lord God, to repent. Help us to know Christ, your son. Forgive us, Lord God, when we think that your son work wasn't enough for us. Father, we lay down at the foot of the cross. We ask for your help and your mercy and your grace in Jesus' holy name. Amen.